0: Today's show is brought to you by MParticle. It's the only customer data platform built to address modern data challenges. For most brands today, customer interactions are spread across a lot of connected devices, and that makes it tough to create optimal experiences and drive the right marketing outcomes. That's why brands like Spotify, Venmo, and Airbnb use mparticle. It lets them unify customer data into a single customer view. Then they can easily integrate that data into any marketing or analytics platform with no additional engineering time required. The result is more personalized customer experiences on websites and in apps, as well as more relevant ads across all channels and partners. Visit mparticle.com to learn how mparticle can help your business unify the customer experience and accelerate growth. Recode Radio presents Recode Decode, coming to you from the Vox Media Podcast Network. Hi, I'm Kara Swisher, Executive Editor of Recode. You may know me as the person who decides what price Bitcoin sells at, but in my spare time, I talk tech, and you're listening to Recode Decode, a podcast about tech and media's key players, big ideas, and how they're changing the world we live in. You can find more episodes of Recode Decode on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Play Music, wherever you listen to podcasts or just visit reco.net slash podcasts for more. Today in the red chair is Sarah Tavell, a partner at venture capital firm Benchmark. She was the first woman ever hired as a partner by the firm and that was in May of 2017. She previously worked at Bessemer Venture Partners, Pinterest, and Greylock Partners. Sarah, welcome to Recode Decode. Thank you so much. And joining me here today for the interview is Recode's senior finance and influence editor. Is that in your title? Yeah, fancy title, right? (laughs) Teddy Schliefer. He writes a lot about venture capital firms like Benchmark. Hey, Teddy. Hey. How are you doing? Good. So I've known Sarah for a a while, I guess, a while. And she was also one of our Recode 100 uh, winners. Yeah, Uh, the very tail
1: end, but I'll take it. (laughs) Take it. You'll go on this year.
0: I guarantee a higher... Rating this year if you do well, especially with Bitcoin. Um, why don't we start talking a little bit about your background? Because you've worked a lot of places, and you're a relatively young person. But you've been to you've been a venture capitalist. You worked in.
1: Yeah, I mean, I started my venture career one year out of college, which is mm-hmm. pretty atypical, right? Um, so why yeah. don't we
0: go through that? Because it's not like I know we're not going to overly focus on the woman issue, but there's not that many
1: women venture yeah. capitalists, yeah, yeah. and we
0: want to talk about why that is a little bit. Sure. Later, but why don't we talk about your journey and where you went?
1: I mean, I I got into venture. Um, well, it's, you know, taking a step back, like I was philosophy major in mm-hmm. college. So I um, had always been interested in investing, mm-hmm. but, you know, didn't really even know what venture capital was right. uh, until basically the week I applied to a venture job. But why that after college? <clears throat> so what happened is I was at a strategy consulting firm. That was a startup, and I I joined this firm because I'd done a bunch of entrepreneurial things in college and just wanted to be like what? part okay. of a startup. I uh, I, I mean, it's, it sounds quite random, but I started a house painting company, an exterior residential house painting company right. that ended <laughs> yes. up ex, you know expanding into more kind of general subcontracting. Mm-hmm. I sold ads for all these random publications. I was kind of like a local ad sales rep, and I just mm-hmm. realized I knew how to sell, and mm-hmm. so I kept on selling Adds to the same people for different products, basically. Mm-hmm. and so i was I was kind of more focused on making money in college than I was going to classes. Right. And you know it ended up being that I joined this tragic consulting firm, and it it kind of went up, and then, as it often does, it we you know one of our biggest clients had some budget problems and we started to thrash and I started to look for a new job, and I'd always um, I'd always been interested actually in investing. My dad was a public equity investor and I started to look into equity research jobs, and then had the you know really good fortune of talking to one of my friends who was um, who uh, I had known in college and she was like you know what you're you know you love investing. And you did all these random entrepreneurial things in college. You should look into venture capital. Mm-hmm. And I was I honestly was like, well, what's venture capital? And so I went out, there's this um, bookstore in Harvard Square mm-hmm. called the Co-op mm-hmm. and I bought the Vault Guide to Venture Capital. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and it was one of those things that I the more I read, the more I realized that this is what I wanted to do. Right. That it felt super exciting to get to work with founders in these like you know early stages of a company and still be doing investing and i knew you know the lowest rung of the ladder in a venture capital firm is this sourcing role where mm-hmm. you're cold calling founders and you're trying to get them to you know take a next meeting and take your money eventually and i knew through my ad experience that i could do that like i knew how to wow. like do the you know do 20 calls in a day and mm-hmm. and um, and sell people so I ended up um I ended up applying to Bessemer, you know I had which is they there, right it's one is yeah, that yeah that's right. so yeah. they have a place in upstate in in Larchmont, new mm-hmm. york and um and it was just it was super lucky timing because they were looking to hire an analyst to the team at the same time that I was looking to jump ship mm-hmm. and um and I ended up you know it, it's really thanks to the random work experience I had in college that I ended up uh, getting the job mm. Mm-hmm. And joining as one of I think I was the first woman they hired in probably ten years, mm-hmm. and uh, and it was supposed to be a two year job and ended up being six for me. So I was five years in the New York office. I was working with this um, one partner, Jeremy Levine. I don't know if yep. you know him. He's really, he's a he's an awesome person. Um, <clears throat> and so I was there, you know, I was working on any, you know, it was sourcing deals in the beginning for you know software as a service companies, companies like Cornerstone On Demand and, and MindBody and others, and then. Um, worked on a bunch of companies that like really range from you know deep in the stack to higher kind of consumer stuff like diapers.com. I moved uh, to the west coast about f- uh, five years in into- Because you had to. Or what no, was- you know I like I grew up in Manhattan mm-hmm. and I there was a combination of being a little sick of New York yeah. and also I started to realize that New York City was a local maxima. Like if I really wanted to build my career in technology. I wanted to be in the global maxima. I wanted to be in the place where the best were. And so I transferred from Bessemer's New York office to the Menlo Park office. And actually what ended up being really fortuitous is that I, um, I joined, You know, I, I had been tracking this one company, Pinterest. Um, I was an early user of the product and just really, really loved um, what they were doing. And I had actually met the founders, or actually Paul, oh. Ciara, mm-hmm. when they were working on the precursor to Pinterest called Tote. Oh, wow. And so I like, I, you know, as Pinterest came out, I started to play with it. I loved it so much and reached out to them, like basically the day I moved to, the, to San Francisco. And um, and we ended up, you know, I ended up sourcing the investment for, for Bessemer. So we did the Series A it was, you know, a four-person company at the time. It was really minuscule, and um, and then, as as you, as you know, I ended up just loving the company so much that I decided to jump ship and join.
2: I'd love to get a little bit more yeah. into just like the experience of being a young person at a yeah, venture capital yeah, sure. firm, not being a general partner, which is something when you talk to people today, um, you know, there there is occasionally frustration that you know there's people who steal a deal or market the deal as theirs, or people who will say. Um, you know, it's hard. It's, some folks in, in venture today don't feel that it's a meritocracy being a young person at a firm. So what, what was it like being at Bessemer? What was the, uh, what was it like in general? You know, you're still fairly young, but being, uh, someone who's been in venture for a long time and growing up in the business about being, you know, an analyst or an associate at a big top tier venture firm. Yeah. And how do you, how do you succeed there?
1: You know, it was um, like there were a, there were a bunch of different factors that uh, really influenced my my early days at Bessemer. I mean, first of all, like I was coming into a venture capital firm with really no experience in technology uh, and and no actual like investing experience. I mean, right. everything was really new to me, and I was the only woman in a you know twenty five person firm. I was you know I felt physically the smallest. You know, it was it mm-hmm. felt very. Very different. I had never been in the con in a context where I was the only woman, actually. So it was it was one of those things that I didn't really know what to expect, um, and it ended up feeling um, feeling hard in the beginning. And the the nice thing though about the analyst job in a venture capital firm is that the measure of merit is very objective, which is do you source good deals. Right. And so it was a type of thing that I didn't have to, you know, politic to get ahead. I just had to do what I knew I could do, which is... Call a lot of companies, work really hard. But how did you evaluate them? I would tell you. Well, so in the beginning, like it's, um, you know, when you're when you're an analyst, you actually are supposed to orient towards companies that are already kind of working, and so you end up like meeting companies, and you and you learn what questions to ask. How are they? You know, I was doing a lot of software as a service companies. So where is their monthly recurring revenue? Like how much does it cost to acquire the customer? How fast are they growing? How much have they raised? And so then there's like those things that are pretty objective also. And then what we would do is every Monday we would have an analyst meeting where basically the analysts would present the you know two or three most interesting companies that they spoke to the prior week. And and that was how you circulate or socialize the company to the partners. And then they would do the next step. You would be part of the diligence process for that company. And that was how you start to develop your own pattern recognition and learn how to diligence the company, and then ultimately which companies to invest but, in.
0: But as to, to Teddy's question, yeah. how do you, most of the younger people source the better things because they're yeah, sort of on the ground. Yeah, yeah. So how do you? What do you need them for? Kind of thing.
1: Well, the, what do you need the, yeah. the young people?
0: No, no, the old. No, the old older people. <laughs> well, <laughs> well
1: you partners. know, in the beginning, like you, as you don't know person. what's good, right. right? As a young person, what you do know is it, it's kind of like I, the way I think of it is that you get very, very good in the early days of knowing what are the 50 companies that the firm should meet with every year, you know? And then like, as you progress, you you go from knowing what the 50 companies are that you should meet to, to then you get a little bit better and you know, what are the 30 that you should be spending time with? Mm-hmm. And then it's, what are the 10? But ultimately the hardest decision is what are the two that you invest in, right? you know? And so that's where the, um, you know, the the gray hair really helps. And then it's also, as you know, it's, Winning the deal. You know, it's a lot harder to do that when you're a year out of college. Right.
2: And so you felt like being a young person at a venture firm, you know, the same way that a GP is evaluated based on, you know, their returns individually, you felt like if you were one of the people that sourced, you know, that presented the list of 50 or presented the list of 10 um, and the company succeeded, they would say, you know, Sarah sourced this deal. She was the analyst and she gets points.
1: Yeah, no, and that's think, exactly right. Do you think that's right. still
2: true today in venture? Do you think that there's, um, obviously there's some folks who kind of walk in the door, you know, at a GP level or at a higher level than someone in their 20s, but you think that's still kind of the path to success for someone who's fresh out of college or maybe has an MBA yeah, without and wants question. to rise?
1: Yeah, yeah, I mean, it's it's what, if you're if you're joining a venture firm in the more junior roles, but even as, if you join as a principal or a VP, yeah. you know, at the end of the day, it's so much about seeing the right deals. And that's, that is, um, so, I mean, that's, that's really what it comes down to. And again, it's, there's, there's so much subjectivity in who gets credit for a deal, you right. know? Like, it's very— Oh, that's all we do. It's all—yeah. Yeah. We're trying being
0: a reporter. It's really sorry. hard. No, it's, I did Uber. No, I right, did Uber. Right, exactly. And
1: then last year, I didn't do Uber. Right, right. Uber. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. And, it's, you know, success has many fathers, as they say. And and even, I mean, look, you even look at the Facebook story, and there's, you know, three people who claim having sourced that investment. So there's, there's, there's still always that question, but it's just—it's a very objective way— for a young person to say that they're doing the, a good job and then also to build their own personal brand. And ultimately, like... And have the relationships with the founders. Yes. Was well, that harder as a woman? Um, you know, I, I would assume so. I, it's so hard to know because I don't have an A-B experiment. Right. Um, but, yeah, I don't know the answer to that. Yeah, but you didn't pal around. Maybe you did? <laughs> no, I didn't pal around too much. <laughs> no, not
0: too much yeah. drinking and yeah, going yeah. To clubs and stuff. So you got interested in Pinterest and went there. Yes, right? that's right. So what caused that?
1: You know, I um, I'd been in venture for uh, you know six years actually. By the time I left, uh, which made you ancient, which made me ancient, and it was one of those things where I knew a couple things. I knew that I had basically locked in a career in venture. Like you know, Pinterest was. Just it was and I mean, super lucky, it was an incredible like it was already really growing, and i I believed and I believed so much in the product from the very beginning that I just had a lot of conviction that this was going to become a really important company and and at the same time, like I always had this voice in the back of my head, which was that I wanted to experience myself in a company, and I wanted to know what it was like to be in a company. you know there's um it was partially just my own experience, like I'd always been on, you know, sports teams. I was captain of the rugby team. Like mm-hmm. I loved being a part of a team and leading a team. And and wanted to know what that was like to be to do it like in the big leagues, in a in a real company. And then I I also like always felt like I would go to board meetings and there was something that felt almost a little inauthentic to me that I would try to, you know, the CEO would ask for advice on something and I could come from a very rational, analytical place, but I didn't feel like I could come from a place that was, you know, from the heart. And right. that's kind of more who I am. Like yeah. I really want to be able to, like, have that empathy come from that. Also, words could be Kabuki theater. There's, bit. there's definitely a part of that. Yeah. Um, and so, th- those were that was like a voice in the back of my head for a long time, and it just got louder and louder the more time I spent with Pinterest. Like at the time, I was, you know doing anything I could to help make the company successful. Like when we invested, it was a four, you know, five person company growing really quickly. And there was just so much to get done that they didn't have enough people around the table to do it. So I was I was like chasing domain squatters for Ben, like trying to find engineers, wow. like doing whatever I could. Right. And just realizing that you could only do so much from the outside. Right. Um, and so I just realized, you know, do you know the Bezos regret minimization framework? No, it's, um, he has funny. this great video mm-hmm. where he talks about. And I remember like watching this video as I was making this decision of making decisions today that minimize the regret you have in the future. Ah, and uh, and I realized that if I didn't kind of throw my hat into the ring and join, you know, try to join Pinterest, I didn't know whether Ben would have any interest in hiring me. Um, but if I didn't throw my hat into the ring and at least try, I'd always regret it. So, I um, I basically called Ben up um, one day and and essentially asked for a job. I pitched myself as like a <laughs> as a BD person, you know. Right, I kind perfect. of I told him I was like I'll get the pin it button everywhere, and and then he actually reverse pitched me and said, you know what? What I really need is someone to just fix problems for me. You right. know, he's like I need a utility player. I I need someone who will. Like put structure around a problem, solve it, move on to the next problem, solve it, et cetera.
0: Right. So, what's that job title?
1: Well, the job, the actual job title was business operations specialist. Right. Um, but it was, you know, it was, it was, it was like when I started at Pinterest. Um, you know, the first thing I had to do. Was help us localize Pinterest. Like we had never launched internationally, right. all of our all of the strings in our code were just English, mm-hmm. and so there was no way to actually you know swap in a different language for for these strings. So I worked with an engineer and did that. Then it was, uh, oh, we're starting to get some interest for our Series C financing. Why don't you you know here are some term sheets, figure this out and close right. our Series C financing, which right. is actually our our unicorn round right. um, as it as it ended up being called. Um, and then increasingly, what ended up happening is so that I mean, you were the one they were paying attention to. Oh well, yeah, suppose. so you knew the other side. It was. Of that. I mean, it was. I remember, like, this was probably just a couple months after I joined, and this I was, was a big was, one. I remember. Yeah, and I felt I was like, man, if I get fired tomorrow, and I go back to venture, I'll have already learned so much, like from this experience. What not to do, probably. Yeah. Well, what not to do? Yeah. I mean, it is so interesting to see how different venture firms act during this process. Like, it's it's. It is not. Can um, you give one story, yeah. like not say who did something? not? Sure. Yeah, yeah. Work. I mean, there was um, one firm that uh, has a reputation for being founder friendly, and 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 rightly so because it was. A, you're, I was negotiating these deal docs with mm-hmm. um, uh, with Rakuten, which is this Japanese right. uh, firm, and as you can imagine, it was pretty tricky because. They were using an East Coast firm, they were in Japan, like this was mm-hmm. one of their first venture investments. So I was very focused on executing the deal with them. And then, you know, at, at some point in the process, you have to kind of bring, you know, the deal to your insiders and make sh- see if they have any changes. And, you know, one group had, um, you know, I called it death by a thousand paper cuts. It mm-hmm. was like so many little tweaks. And the other group was like, just when you need our signature, you know, just let me know and we'll sign it. Mm-hmm. And you just, that's a very big difference um, Absolutely. that you feel. Yeah, yeah. Um, but then what ended up happening is that, you know, at the time that I joined Pinterest, we had no product managers, um, Ben and Evan, the two co-founders, were um, they were actually against the idea of a product manager. Mm-hmm. And what, what ended up happening is that the you know the daily stand-up with the engineers was basically the same every day. Mm-hmm. Um, and and I ended up kind of working with a bunch of engineers on a couple of projects. Those ended up shipping and kind of moving on on track. And so ended up becoming really one of the first product managers at pinterest right and i um I started the search team with another one of the engineers and uh, and that ended up kind of expanding into what we ended up calling our discovery team so by the end of my time at Pinterest, I was responsible for our search and our all the recommendations on Pinterest, our computer vision team, our pin quality team and um and it was you know it was a pretty you know it was one of those things that's like that. Don't ask what seat you just get on the rocket ship. Like, you know, I, again, as a philosophy major, you know, you, you feel like, how did, how did I end up being the product manager for really the most technical product team at Pinterest? Right. Yeah. But it was, um, it, it ended up really working. Yeah. So why'd you leave? Oh, that was a hard decision. I, I really anguished over it. I mean, what happened is that the Greylock team reached out to me and, um, I mean, they were they were very savvy about it. They were, you know, it was. I'm not lo- not looking to leave. I'm super happy here. And um, Jeff Markowitz. I don't know if you know Jeff. No. Um, he's fantastic. He was like, you know, totally get it. But do you want to meet Reed Hoffman? Oh. <laughs> and so then you like, you know, you meet Reed, and he's just such a wonderful, amazing person. You you come out and you feel like you've learned so much. And then oh, that was a great meeting. Well, do you want to meet David C.? And then before you know it. You've met everybody on the team. You've and, sort of been
2: interviewing without knowing. Interviewing. Yeah, you're and
1: crying. it's and it's one of those things that um, it really starts to make you think like, gosh, this is an amazing group of people. Right. And I always knew I would go back to venture. I just didn't really know when when that want to stay through
0: the IPO through the.
1: You know, well that was the thing I really asked myself um, at the time. Um, the company was we had just crossed 100 million monthly active users, and we were about 650 people, and. I, had, I felt like I had been there from the very beginning. You know, I was on the outside in the beginning, um, but then, you know, you do feel like you want to be there for the entire ride. And then at the same time, I also realized that I started to feel like I would have more impact on the venture side. And also that venture was a type of thing that, you know, you look at the careers of many of the best venture capitalists and they, and they really start to do their best deals no, know, five or six years into it. Yeah. Um, people like Eric, my my partner, Eric Vishria, who did, you know, just unbelievable deals in his first year are an anom- anomaly. It's most of the time it takes several years to get really good at mm-hmm. the job. And, and I realized, like, you know, if I want to be one of the best in the industry, which is what I want to be, I should start doing the job now. Right. Um, and so I make it sound easy. <laughs> I really did anguish over this yeah. decision because leaving a company is... It's a very unnatural thing to do, it right. almost it feels is, like yeah. you're like senior year in college first semester right, and everybody's you know getting excited for the best year, and then you're like, all right, um I just got my dream job it's time for me to go right. so I left um you know in gosh, I can't remember I think it was July 2015 and uh, and and joined the the Greylock team as one of the partners. And then went to Benchmark. <laughs> <And so, laughs> uh, you know, You're a fascinating
0: person to a lot of it's, people. It's, so um,
1: it was, you know, that was obviously not planned. Like, mm-hmm. when, I, when I joined Greylock, it was, you know, it was a decision to be there for, for, you know, my venture career. And what ended up happening is I, you know, I was, you know, on the consumer team at Greylock. I'd led a couple investments. And then... Got to know the benchmark team, and it was one of those things where they reached out to me and in a very similar fashion, you just start to get to know each of the the members of the team right and um, and you know and then they kind of told me about their interest in you know genu- like really getting to know me and, and I said no like it was it didn 't feel like um, the right thing to do at the time, and then I realized that you know what. <laughs> Don't I owe it to myself in a way, like this is what I want to do for my career. I owe it to myself to get to know how some of the best in the business do the job. Right. And and it felt almost like, what do I have to lose? Mm-hmm. Um, let me, like at the very least, it'll make me better at my job at Greylock. Mm-hmm. And so I, I started to get to know the team. And then the more I got to know the team and the way, you know, they do the job at Benchmark and the way that Benchmark is structured, the more I realized, like, Wow, this is actually the way I want to do venture, Mm -hmm. and so um, such as what? What was the? You know, it's um, you hear like the way I would describe Benchmark is that it's this very small partnership. Mm -hmm. It's a very lean team, as you know. Like there's it's six. Well, I remember the old Benchmark. I was I was around for the first Benchmark. The the five tall guys. Oh yeah. Yeah, um they were real tall. They were really tall. It's yeah. um I definitely <laughs> read e-boys during their- yeah. <laughs> that first um, meeting with them. <laughs> I can only imagine. Um yeah. but you know, it was one of these things where you've got like at the time it was just five partners. You know, mm-hmm. I'm obviously the six, and you've got no nothing else. No associates, no talent partner, no marketing partner. It's like they kind of talk about investing being the only thing. And there is just a Complete clarity of we just do Series A, Series B investments. Our fund is the same size fund as it's as it's been since you know for the last I don't know 15 years, and um, and then of course the equal partnership and. You know, before I got to know the benchmark team, I thought about the equal partnership as like a compensation thing. Like, oh, isn't it cool that as a new person, you get to make the same amount of money as like Bill Gurley. But what you what you end up feeling when you're part of the partnership is that it's actually a, a cultural tenant of equality. Like you come in and you feel like from the very beginning that you are an equal. And, and that is such a different dynamic than it is in many other firms. Which is you work your way up. Yeah, you work your way up. Um, you earn credibility over time. You have to prove yourself is kind of what you can feel. And I came into Benchmark and I didn't feel like I had to prove myself at all. And it was almost a scary feeling because I'm so used to... Working your way up. Yeah, and and using that to drive you, you know? like, And then you realize that actually the way that you do it at Benchmark is that you don't direct that energy internally, you direct it externally. Huh. Um, and so it just... Um, yeah, it just felt like a very different place. And of course, like, I mean, this is, uh, every firm talks about being team oriented, mm-hmm. but when you have an equal partnership, it it really actually does happen. Like where you are, you know, you are all focused on just doing the best investments that we can as a partnership and then supporting those investments Regardless of who, you know, is on the board of that company. Well, that's the goal, at least. Well yeah, yeah. but you really do feel it. <laughs> All right. We're here with Sarah Tavels. She is a, a partner at
0: Benchmark, and we've just heard about her <laughs> very <laughs> varied career in a very short time. Yeah. I do like that you leave and go. I think it's fantastic I that when it <laughs> happens. Um, I've done it myself. Um, when we get back, we're going to talk about some of her investments and her thoughts. We're also here with Teddy Schliefer, who covers venture capital and influence for us, apparently, uh, apparently at uh, at Recode. And we're going to talk about where Sarah thinks the big investments are right now. She's very involved in Bitcoin and other uh Uh, cryptocurrency so we'll talk about that and more today's show is brought to you by squarespace with squarespace you can create a beautiful website to showcase your work promote your business announce an upcoming event and so much more customize the look and feel of your site with just a few clicks using their gorgeous design templates everything is optimized for mobile right out of the box you can buy a domain and choose from over 200 extensions and squarespace offers free and secure hosting there's nothing to patch or upgrade ever But if you do need help, Squarespace offers award-winning customer support 24 hours a day, seven days a week. Are you ready to make your great ideas stand out? Head to squarespace.com for a free trial. When you're ready to launch, use the offer code DECODE to save 10% off your first purchase of a website or domain. That's squarespace.com to start your free trial and then use the offer code DECODE to save 10%. We're here on Rico Decode with Sarah Tavol. She's a partner at Benchmark. She's had a long career, <laughs> a very young person at many venture capital firms, and uh, Bessemer, Greylock. Uh, she's worked at Pinterest, and now she's at uh, Benchmark. Yes. Um, and when you got there, what did you decide? Because everybody at Benchmark has certain areas, and obviously mm. this past year, all Bill Gulley's done is deals with, with Uber. Yeah. All three of your partners, yeah, yeah. it's, it's well, been a real. It's, it was, it's been a full, yeah, full he, team he, he, Full-team engagement. Full-team engagement. Yeah. But you focused more on
1: cryptocurrency, Would you—can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, sure. I mean, I—yeah, uh, it's—I it's, it's um, I, I, I kind of always describe Benchmark as, you know, instead of—you know, at, a, at, at Greylock or other firms, you have, you know, 20 people on the field. You have to choose a very specific position— at, at Benchmark, you've got six of you, so mm-hmm. you get to take up a lot more space. So I definitely, you know, I spent a lot of time in consumer, I've, you know, I've led two deals so far at Benchmark, one of which is a consumer marketplace and, you know, continue to look in that space. But the space that I ended up feeling a real gravitational pull towards um, was, was the cryptocurrency space. You know, I I read um, the Bitcoin white paper when I was actually at Pinterest. and um, I, you know, I remember thinking, God, this Satoshi guy, he's a genius, but this feels like it'll never work as a currency. It's just it's deflationary. And I kind of put it to the side. I didn't really think much about it. And then um when I was at Greylock, I actually remember reading about um, Ethereum and the Dow. Mm-hmm. And as a philosophy major, when you read about this idea of a smart contract, we know this Kind of code that self-executes to, um, you know, like if if uh, you, you have some kind of contract and if this, then it'll execute some 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 like payment or whatever it may be. Um, that to me was this, you know, like, wow, this is going to change everything. And so I started to dig in more when I was actually at Graylock, and and at one point, you know, really got involved with. A graylock and benchmark investment called Zappo. I don't know if mm-hmm. you if you know. Wences. Yes, Wentz is right. I fantastic. just saw him the other night. Oh, he's I call him. Everybody calls him Patient Zero for yeah. Silicon Valley of Bitcoin. <laughs> he, he was he's, the first person. He made me buy Bitcoin.
0: Oh, uh, I, and uh, as uh, I did a story on it a hundred years ago, and I can't find my Bitcoin, but that's
1: another issue. That's so funny. I think a lot of people owe him a lot of money. They do. Like they do. If am ever going to find mine, but I know. Yes. If he could take Harry on. All the the uh, the winnings that people yes. had from he buying was the Bitcoin. One. He was John it's, the Baptist of Bitcoin. Yeah, that's right. Um, and he actually, you know, was the first person I sat down with um, as I was trying to make sense of this ecosystem and just kind of like give me the one one. And so when I joined Benchmark, um, the ICO stuff was just starting to happen, and I really. It was one of those things that you feel um, you feel this intellectual gravitational pull. it's um, it's it's also one of the I mean, one of the things that I always look for is where are the smartest people that I know spending their time? And there's just so much energy, like you just keep on meeting person after person who is um, super intelligent and 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 passionate about the space. And so, I spent the first few months of my time at Benchmark just doing a lot of reading, a lot of talking to people. You know, you could you could go you could read medium post after medium post, <laughs> white paper after white paper, and still feel like you are just starting to figure it out. Um, but it it ended up being yeah, just a space that I think is is still incredibly early. Um, but there's a lot of promising things happening.
2: Do you feel like what's kind of the temperature of, of- to benchmark investors Mm. in terms of your limited partners uh, on investing in crypto. Obviously, I know every firm is sort of deliberating how much risk they're willing to take. Um, Benchmark obviously is a track record that should give people some comfort. But is that a tough sell to to your folks to say, you know, hey, we're thinking about investing in a token We're thinking about potentially even just buying a raw asset. Like is that a, is that a tough conversation or do they get it?
1: Well, first of all, we've been investing in the space for several years. I mean, we invested in Zappo in 2014, we invested right. in um in a fund called Pantera and Bitstamp in 2014. So, our interest in the space isn't new to our LPs. And and then at the same time, like you've got a lot of other venture firms who are Making exactly the same phone call to their LPs, so it's not it's not the first time that they they hear about it. And as you said, I mean we're we're in a pretty privileged position with our LPs right now, where um, you know they they trust us to make the call. So it hasn't been it, that that hasn't been hard, and we have. Our, our documents all. Amended. Also, probably throwing money at you right now. Well, there's we're we're in a we're so in a good not position. quite as much money yeah. as Softbank. We'll That's right. That yeah. Yeah. yeah, the The you know the hard thing is when you keep your fund the same small size. Um, yeah. Um, they're gonna roll over everybody. That's that's right. But you know what what ends up happening is um, in, within the partnership we have uh, a spectrum of bullishness. Like, um, I mean, you you know, like Bill yesterday uh, kind of mentioned he was. Uh, I can't remember he said he, exactly. It was nauseous
2: talking about it. said Every, everybody, this is at the Goldman Sachs tech conference with like hundreds of public market yeah. investors. says, everybody in this room is nauseous talking about crypto, so let's move on.
1: I, you know, it's it's so, f- I like, I saw that. I was like, Bill, you know? <laughs> <laughs> um, not, well, make the nauseous case. What's well, the-, the nauseous case is, um, well, is a few things, which is, so number one, when you actually look at the underlying, like when, I mean, to your opener on Bitcoin, what, you know, what dictates the price of Bitcoin besides fluctuations in supply and demand? Mm-hmm. You know, like you, you know, there a lot of we were actually I think part of Bill's comment came from the uh, as a partnership. We actually just came back. We, we flew to New York City on Sunday and spent time with a lot of um, people that we respect uh, in New York City that are, you know, on the private equity side, the hedge fund side. Mm-hmm. And as a, as you can imagine, one of the most fun topics to talk about when you're meeting with these people is, what do you think about what's happening in the cryptocurrency ecosystem? And mm-hmm. so it ends up being this big topic of conversation. So people on the on the East Coast kind of can think about Bitcoin as a trade. And then when you look at, you know, the promise of the blockchain, which is this idea that we're going to have all these decentralized applications that... You know, people talk about, we're going to have this, you know, decentralized Uber, and you're going to call a car from the cloud, you know, mm-hmm. that, you know, has been an idea, like this, they call them dApps, decentralized applications, um, has which are basically applications that are built on a blockchain. Right. They, that's been an idea out there for, for several years and yet there's nothing to show for it. Right. That's the that, yes. I think
0: one of the things that's interesting about it is everyone's like, It's like I, I was at the early internet and yes there and one of the facets of the early internet, there was a lot of con men and Hucksters. Right. Very much so. Oh. I millions uh, of them. And those. that's the same here right now. Except you were using the internet. You understood the use of it. And I think one of the problems is what do I use? I don't even understand yeah. what it's used for yet, or I don't see any actual applications. And so that's so to me, where the investments are are not necessarily in playing the currency game, but who, what are the companies that are going to be the Google of? Right. And, and we and I don't know that
1: we no, no one really knows but that. But why yet. not?
0: Like I knew the internet well, once. I'm s- like oh, hey, well, okay. I can see Yahoo. Uh, I can see him. You know right. what I mean? You right, start to right. become very clear. Yeah,
1: and Adam. I don't know if you, um, you at some point you should have Adam Ludwin on. He's he has some a great blog post on exactly this issue, which is that there are you know so many uh, alleged use cases for the blockchain, but really what it what it comes down to is this idea of of being censure proof that. A lot of the use cases that make a lot of sense for using Bitcoin or, or, you know, blockchain more generally are use cases where um, you couldn't do it otherwise. So as an example, I mean, there's definitely the illegal use cases, you know. There's just kind of criminal activity, buying things that are, is are... not a business you really want to get into. Not a business you want to get into. Um, but there are also, you know, you're in Venezuela and mm-hmm. you need protection which from is an inflationary- Zappa, which is Wentz's. Yes, yeah. Wentz's argument. Um, you have, you know, you want to get your current... You want to get money out of your country. Um, there, are like, mm-hmm. there are use cases that do... Makes sense there, and and I think a lot of um, you know I think actually a lot of the positive bumps that you probably see in Bitcoin, are as a result of like some newspaper article talking about the people in whatever country it may be that are using Bitcoin because they have nothing else that they right. can do. Right. Um, and that's a real that is a real use case. Right. It's um, okay. It's yeah. not the internet yet. It's though. not the internet yet. Yeah. Yet. I mean, I kind of like it's it's um, yeah. So I think it's like we are in. The infrastructure build-out phase mm-hmm. of this ecosystem, like part of the problem, is that if you think about executing a contract on Ethereum or trying to build an application on Ethereum, it's just not at a point that can scale. Mm-hmm. And and same with Bitcoin, like we have a number of challenges that um, that you know that that have to do with scaling and therefore transactional costs, and and they're just kind of the fundamental. Infer- like the idea of having a decentralized architecture necessarily means that you have a less efficient architecture than anything centralized, mm-hmm. right? Like it's there was some analysis I saw someone do that talked about how it's I think he said it was 400 million times more expensive to execute a, a snippet of code on Ethereum as it is to mm-hmm. do it on AWS. Right. So you have to have a very very strong reason to do it and. The infrastructure to really let you scale doing that is still very, very new, which is a lot. What a lot of the ICOs are going towards. So, it's like we're in you know, it's a trite conversation, but I think we're in the 80s, and it'll just happen much faster. And 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 it's a little bit like we need to you know kind of let the creativity bloom and see. Once so, does that mean the
0: big companies will be the ones, or or the banks, or the it will be taken captive of before that? Because it's against the bank's business. This is all. I mean, if well, it works in the in the philosophical way that it's supposed to, you don't need banks. You don't need.
1: Well, that that would be the very long long term. Really, I think so. Why? Yeah, there's just a lot of intermediate steps that have to happen before you know. We're like, I think often what happens is that we in the in the very beginning of any new platform change, you think about disrupting kind of the the incumbent stuff, mm-hmm. but really what ends up happening is that. You kind of you start to move into a more orthogonal area, Sure. and then that ends up actually being like the third step is that it disrupts the incumbents. Well, if you take it to the logic extreme, yeah. I'm not
0: a genius around this. Is you don't need governments. That you know, well, the, what do governments do? they provide currency and right. maybe army. Yes. Like, ultimately, if yeah, this yeah. trip it down.
1: Um, yeah, go ahead.
2: Did you question whether or not the you know a, a conclusion of this exercise will be? Do you need venture capital firms? I mean, (laughs) obviously, I mean, that's a, uh, you know, that's kind of the paradox that all VC firms are in today is, you know, they employ people like you to look at crypto and should we uh, invest in crypto and how do we, how does benchmark make money off of it? Side by side, there are other venture capitalists who, again, have varying levels of worry about um, not that every entrepreneur in in 10 years is going to raise money through an initial coin offering, but some will. And is that, do you worry about kind of the existential question about like, You've been at this for a long time. You obviously love the gig about whether or not it's going to raise questions about the need for venture capital firms at all.
1: Yeah, you know, there was a period when this ICO craze was happening where, you know, you had to ask yourself that as right. a VC. And, um, and, and, look at the, and if you look at the stats, in 2017, there was more money put into ICOs than seed investments. So that definitely has to make you wonder, and of course— you look at how much money some of these companies raise in their ICOs and it completely takes the business away from a VC but i i don't believe that the ICO structure that as it is right now is going to continue um, i think that there was a lot of fomo driving it i think that it is very i mean it's it's very clearly a bubble to me what's happening at the ICOs you've got all these people who made a lot of money in bitcoin and 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 later ethereum who are kind of rolling it into uh, yeah. these ICOs. Now they're super smart because they have exactly. a nice they speculative bet. They think they have the highest touch. And, and by the way, like the bubble, you know, everybody looks smart in a bull market. And so mm-hmm. there are a lot of people who think they're really smart right now. And then you've got all the people who have FOMO. It's, you know, I can only imagine what it must have been like in the internet bubble where mm-hmm. you have all these people around you getting rich and you're like, I, I want there. to get rich That's too. was saying no, that I didn't. <laughs> um, and so what they end up doing is that they, they, you know, hear about a new blockchain project and they buy into the token offering and you've just got, you've got all these people raising a lot of money. But, but as you know, like the, well, there's a couple of things. Like number one is that I do think a lot of these projects um, are going to collapse. A lot of them have been complete scams. But even, the ones that were, you know, very reputable have been blessed by, you know, a lot of the powers that be, you know, um, projects like Tezos have had pretty um, visible, n- not quite implosions, but like real problems with them. And, and, then, and then you've got like a lot of the money that's just been floating around or like has been a- a- irrationally exuberant. It's just going to go away. And what we're going to be left with is that actually making these early stage calls is really freaking hard. Yeah. And 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 I also, you know, for what it's worth, and this may be right or wrong, I don't I don't fundamentally believe in the structure of the ICO. I don't believe in um, a couple engineers writing a white paper, trying to anticipate all the you know the inflation rate that they want to have, all the incentives. I mean, it just seems like we've gone back in software development to the 80s where you had waterfall development and and really to build you know these types of networks you want to have a very iterative process you want to be able to adjust the inflation rate like i mean i always think about war of warcraft like they had this gold you know they have gold in war of warcraft and they never could have anticipated some of the times when they had to have an inflationary uh, monetary policy or a deflationary monetary policy, like it took them a while to, f- to kind of get a sense for how gold was going to be used in mind to mm-hmm. really know what to do. And so you've got people who try to anticipate everything. They write this long white paper. They then sell tokens to people. And then they're beholden to those people. Um, and it makes it a lot harder to pivot, it makes it a lot harder to iterate from there, and so I think that, like, if I were to guess, I think that you might actually see almost a kind of open source 2.0 type structure, where you've got, you know, people who are um, who like want to create a new a new token project, and they actually raise good old fashioned equity right. to for that company. They, you know, become the core contributors to the project. They get, you know, in the token offering, they get tokens on the balance sheet. And that's their incentive to kind of continue to uh, to make that project go forward. And so you end up having a little bit more of like a centralized, decentralized hybrid model that um, that ends up, you know, thankfully for me, still creating a need for venture capital And to invest in these companies. Yes. And
0: it will be the companies that... Um not the bitcoin speculators that will make the money. I remember there was yeah. this, there was a stock market bubble during the early internet for companies that don't exist anymore. There was one that was a storage company. They made little things that you stored stuff on. It was okay. it was a bunch of companies like that and then they all went away. It was really. And then there was Google years and years later.
1: I believe that. Yeah. Later.
0: Yeah. Amazon later. Right. You know, yeah, it, was, yeah. it was interesting. And
1: yeah, right now it's the the space is I think attracting the best and the worst of people.
0: Right. Yeah, 100%. Yeah. And also, it's, I think it, when it becomes something that people use is when it, businesses use is right. when it really matters. Right, right. But we don't know that. We don't know that.
1: Well, no. and you would say, like, I mean, I think Bitcoin itself, like store of value, is one of is an, a really important early use case. This kind of idea of just payments, like a digital. If you can
0: get it to people using it, that's right. Well,
1: yes. Yeah, so yeah. who but, does that? Who? Well, you. I can send you Bitcoin right now. No, I
0: know that. But who actually uses it for actual? So to the well, bulk of transactions,
1: right? No, there. No one. No one's using it as a payment product. It's more. Right. You people. I mean, I kind of think of it as my dystopian hedge. You know, no. kind of like a, what you know. People are preppers, and this yeah. is my, my version of prepping, are which is to have. No, I'm not a prepper, <laughs> but I do have Bitcoin as and as as my as my dystopian hedge. Because you will then do what? When well, heaven? you know, you just it's it's good to feel like you have a a type of currency that exists outside of our. Our government. No, I just have a big pile of gold in my. That's car. a good idea too.
0: <laughs> no, gold, it's so ridiculous. All right,
1: but beyond this, what else are you interested in? Is it just? But is it cryptocurrency you all know, the I mean, way? I, you just you but,
0: clearly are obsessed with it.
1: There's, I spent a lot of time there, but I also, I mean, I'm always looking for consumer, you know, new opportunities in consumer. We, you know, at Benchmark, like still believe in the consumer space, and obviously we have companies like Nextdoor and. Uh, Discord and Marco Polo, and then you know when I was at Pinterest, like I, um, I got to see the transformative impact of deep learning. You know, my my team we started out with kind of plain vanilla computer vision, where I was spending nights and weekends uh, drawing bounding boxes on pin images to try to create classifiers for. These are boots and these are heels and, you know, these are bags. And then we started to play around with deep learning and it was this like tremendous step function in Mm -hmm. the experience that you could create. And so I know I spent a lot of time thinking about, well, what are the applications both to business users and consumers that leverage deep learning in some way? Um, and then you know my partner Eric spends a lot of time there too. He, mm-hmm. you know, we've kind of gone up and down the stack with companies like Cerebras, which is like a chipset company mm-hmm. that makes it easier to train, you know, AI models. Um, to some other companies that are, um, I don't think announced just yet. All right, they're all the future stuff. Yes. A lot Anything of else stuff. that you worried about? Worry about? I mean, I worry about the strength of the incumbents. Um, it is really, you know, they're I didn't strong. Yeah, they're they are never before like this. Never before like I. I didn't realize how lucky I was to start my venture career in 2006. Mm-hmm. You know, like at the time, I you know, we had software as a service, and it was almost the simplest roadmap. It was take an on-prem software product, put it in the cloud, and you've got a public company. You know, it was just it was this kind of rinse and repeat. And then you had Web 2.0, and then mobile, and you had you know going from kind of 3G to 4G. Like you had all these wonderful technology transformations that created so much greenfield opportunity. And here we are where you've got, you know, Facebook, Google, Amazon, Netflix, you know, all these kind of incumbents, Apple, obviously, that are so strong, you know, and it makes it really, really hard for a founder to find the seam that they can exploit and, um, and so, yeah, there's a little bit of waiting, kind of wondering when the next platform's going to emerge, which is I think part of what drives a lot of people like me into crypto right now. Mm-hmm. It's a little bit, yeah, there's kind of relative thing, which yeah, is, they don't have their arms around exactly, them yeah, yeah, yet. and there's and there's yeah, there's no incumbents in crypto, I mean, you could think of Bitcoin and Ethereum as the incumbency, but there's it's not like there's a you know a Mark Zuckerberg running one of those companies mm-hmm. it's they're decentralized protocols. And, uh, and it means that there, there's still a lot of opportunity in the market. Okay, we're here with Sarah Tavel, who is a partner of Benchmark. We are just talking
0: about cryptocurrency. When we get back, we're going to be talking about a bunch of other things that she's doing as a venture capitalist. I also want to tell you about Too Embarrassed to Ask, my other podcast, which I host with Lauren Good from The Verge. That's me. Every Friday, we answer your questions about consumer tech. Lauren, what did we talk about last week? We talked about how it's impossible
2: for you to put down your phone during the duration of our podcast you know what? taping.
0: I'm an important because person.
2: Because you are addicted to tech just like <laughs> everybody else we know these days. We talked about tech
1: addiction, compulsion, obsession, yeah. lots of different terms for it. But this idea that
0: uh, we as human beings are getting very, very, very attached to our devices, but also some of the companies that make the devices and applications we use are designed them in such a way that we can't put them down. We can't. Slot machine of attention. It's like being at a, you know, you just want to click on the buttons constantly. You want to just click on the buttons. So we talked to a lot of really smart people at this week's Code Media Conference. We asked them about their tech obsessions and their tips and tricks for how to break those habits. Yeah, it's really important. It's going to be a big topic over the next year and it's something tech companies really are going to need to face. All joking aside, it's important for our society of how we handle this amazing group of innovations and how we use them responsibly. It was a great discussion and we hope you go listen to it. You can find Too Embarrassed to Ask on Apple Podcasts, Google Play Music, or wherever you listen to podcasts. That's Too Embarrassed to Ask. See you there. We're here with Sarah Tavel, a partner at Benchmark, and we are just talking about her giant interest, her obsession, really, with uh, cryptocurrency, which she's correct to do so. But there's other parts of her job uh, we're going to be talking about um, Teddy, you had a question
2: about. So, Sarah, you're involved with uh, a, a group of women venture capitalists in I think a couple cities now, right? It's Not just here, um, where the idea is to basically get together and, ha- and have a have a network for female founders to come to when they're looking for advice. And I'm curious, you know, there's there's a lot of organizations of women in tech, um, and I'm curious if you've I know it's early if you've noticed any like tangible impacts yet, or if it's still a- 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 of the network of, of female VCs or what kind of the the bigger picture goal is? What do you what do you imagine the impact of this type of thing would be?
1: I mean, I think it's important to give a little context on how we got started, sure. which was um, this was I don't even it's it seems like so long ago now, but when um, all these sexual harassment cases were coming out with with VCs and and entrepreneurs, female entrepreneurs, and there was a little bit of you know I. Um, you know, I had been organizing this, these kind of monthly breakfasts with a bunch of women GPs, and then and we all kind of would come to these breakfasts and feel a little shell shocked um, about what was happening. And then Aileen Lee actually ended up organizing a dinner, and it was kind of like, well, what can we do to make um, to make it better for female founders? To make to make you know it better for female uh, VCs. And, and it ended up being this, like, really wonderful group of of women. You know, it was, it's so interesting to me. <laughs> oh, no, but that's the thing, actually, <laughs> is anymore. when I started at Bessemer in 2006. Um, I can't believe you were one in 25. That's astonishing. Yeah, it, and it felt, it, it felt like I, you know, you would look around and try to see, who were the role models? And it was so small. Like the number of women. Mary Meeker. Yeah. It, I don't think Mary Meeker it was inventor. Yeah, an yeah. It was um, you know, it was people like Teresa Gao and um, Jennifer Fonstadt. And there you know, there were there was a handful, like literally a handful, of of female GPs. And then and and we kind of reached this point. I mean, obviously there's so far to go as an industry, but we reached a point where it felt like all of a sudden we had a critical mass of women. And when, and, and, and I think that there was, sometimes you'd hear that in the kind of early women in, in these, you know, in at Goldman Sachs or whatever group it could be, because there were so few of them, they ended up being more competitive with one another. But instead what we have now is we have a group of women that really have come together because we want to help one another. And we want to we make, you know, each other more successful and we want to help make female founders more successful. And so we kind of we came together. I think that the first dinner was maybe a group of 15 GPS or so. And there's been a couple blog posts about it. And um, and then we ended up trying to think, well, what are the initiatives that we want to take on to help to kind of kind of pursue this mission? And Jess Lee from Sequoia, who's one of the you know new, new additions to the to the female partnership, um, she ended up. Uh, kind of having this idea for hosting female founder office hours. I think it was probably something that she wished she had had when she was at Polyvore. By the way, you know Peter Fenton, as you guys know, is uh, was um, an investor in in Polyvore, and so we ended up um, kind of the one that we had. You know, the first event we had was actually having office hours for female-founded seed companies. Um, we did that in San Francisco. Then it kind of, it, it just, it took off. And we had one in New York, one in LA recently. Mm-hmm. We did one, um, we're going to have one, I think it's next week for Series A companies um, here in San Francisco. And, and who knows like whether any investments come from that. But what is important that's coming from that without question for me is that we're you know increasing access of the female VCs um, to female founders and vice versa. So
0: can I ask you, why yeah. do you have to do that? I mean, honestly, it's, I, it's like ridiculous. On some level, it's insane that I, that you have to do it and then you get all these comments, which I really drives me nuts when, you know, we're doing it based on standards, but they aren't. They, they 100% aren't doing it based on standards.
1: Yeah. I mean, there's definitely, I, I ask myself that question. Like it's, it's you know, I, I do already feel like there's attacks on, my tax. Yeah, exactly on, on my kind of being a female VC and doing the job. And then we we end up taking on these other things. But, you know, we're we're thinking about actually how now to, like, there are so many, as I call them, male allies You've out kind of there. You've got that, We
0: shouldn't even look at them as allies. It's their job. It's,
1: there, are, there are many of them. Yeah. And, and so how do we integrate them into what we are doing? You know, like, it shouldn't just be a female founder pitching a female VC, and that's what it is. It should be a female founder pitching a VC. And right. one of, you know, the top We're VCs. Or just a founder. Yeah, well, well, you know, you have yeah. to start somewhere. Yeah, I guess. Um, and so, so that was one thing. And then the second thing is actually we co-hosted an event um, last, I think it was actually last week, where it was something where we, you know, we hosted a couple panels. I was a, I hosted a panel with Rebecca Caden, who's the GP now at USV, and Emily Milton, partner at at DFJ, on, on on career trajectories for VCs. And we had eighty women in the audience who were, you know, in investing jobs in venture capital firms. And it was one of those things where. I, I could only imagine if I had gotten to attend one of those events, like when I was, you know, one or two years into the job, how inspiring that would be to me and how, like, just seeing people who are um, succeeding and doing it, it makes you feel like you can do it too. So I think that there's a lot of positive things coming out of it. It, it is a lot of work. Like, I, I, um, I, I, we're, we're trying to figure out how to, how to start to spread that around around how? What do you mean? Well, just getting, you know, more people under the tent mm-hmm. to, to take on some of the things that what's we want to do. What's the actual
0: problem, though? I mean, besides rampant sexism across this globe, but what's the actual issue from your, when you— because you, you're someone they've let in, you know what I mean? And now you have status, a benchmark, and have experience. But they seem to, like, just have one, like a merrymaker or you or something like that. What's—from your perspective, what's the problem? And I know you want to be ni-
1: nice about it, but what well, do you imagine— I mean, well, look, I mean, you you mentioned the biggest problem, which yeah, is, sexism, you know, rampant the sexism. Though. There's there's subconscious bias, of course, which is a big thing. Um, I think the subconscious bias is a, is a really big thing, actually. I mean, you look at, I was just reflecting on this, like you look at um, many of the female VCs that are in GP roles have followed career trajectories that are very similar to my own, which is that you come in in a more junior role, which is a lower risk role to hire for prove yourself and then you can get the GP role. And it's a little bit that kind of subconscious bias thing where men get promoted based on potential and women get promoted based on what they've achieved. Mm -hmm. It just, you know, that is a bias of, you know, who, which women get into the ranks. Um, It's just easier when you've already proven yourself, you know, but at the same time, that is starting to change. I mean, you see, more and more examples of women being brought into these GP roles. And I think it's, um, I mean, there's all types of things. There's there's, there's the natural thing of homophily, which is we naturally hang out with people who are like us. And Mm -hmm. there's nothing wrong about that. But you have to make that extra effort to go beyond your natural network. And I think people are just starting to realize that that's what we need to do both when we're looking to hire, you know, a VC at a firm, but then also, you know, a female executive or female engineer or, per, uh, you know, underrepresented minority uh, in in one of these fast-growing startups, like it takes that extra effort because uh, we're starting from a homogenous nucleus, mm-hmm. um, and you have to you have to try extra hard to to break through. Right. Absolutely. But the, at the same time, what's interesting to
0: me is that. It's that it's an ongoing. It's just it's yeah. sort of fascinating because, yeah, yeah. and I do think a lot of women stay in operational roles at companies because it's a better career path trajectory. Because you see, like being one is always of anything is yeah, always it's difficult. Yeah, you know when you are. Um, can we shift just the, the venture business in general? Um, I don't want you to have to be the one to have to talk about. Speaking of which, <laughs> just women, but it's really. Um, you got real touted when you were hired. Oh, we got Sarah Teipel. I'm like, wasn't she over here? <laughs> She's just they're just gonna keep touting her. Same
2: from, total number of women, just Sarah Teipel from from the
0: front. <laughs> <laughs> Sequoia next, and,
1: and then, just just oh, got that one. Covered. Oh, that's right, yeah. she got that
0: one. Excel does Excel have one?
1: Who
0: does no, on. they didn't. Yeah, Excel, yeah. you better get on.
1: It. I am very happy at venture. Good. <laughs>
0: All right, good. So, we, we venture capital in general, where do you imagine it, where we are and where it goes? Like, we tell you, you talk about you have SoftBank sure. coming Oof. in. Oh, that's a big question.
2: SoftBank is bank. just for those who don't know. No. SoftBank, Teddy. Sure, Softbank. I mean SoftBank is uh, both you know loathed and terrorizing, but also an opportunity for a lot of venture capitalists because you know they can mark up companies in your portfolio. Right. But I mean, I think the, the bigger question here is like you know obviously with valuations you know on the rise and, and SoftBank being a threat um, and you know to some extent opportunity. I mean, how do you think about does Does that make you think about the types of deals you do differently? Or does it worry you about? You know, losing a deal because someone adds a zero to the end of the check. Mm. Um,
1: I mean, think you know, one of the like it, it's interesting to see that many other venture firms are having um, a little. I, I don't know if this is fair to say, but a scope creep. You know, where mm. a lot of funds that have started out as kind of traditional Series A, Series B funds are starting to expand both into the seed world. And into the growth world, and so they end up, they will end up kind of competing and feeling that pressure um, more than we do. Like we've, we went through a period of time at Benchmark where we we joke it was like the empire building phase right, where we Israel and yeah we had Israel, we had London, we had a bigger partnership, and and our returns suffered during that time, and we ended up uh, really trying to kind of come back to the core of yeah, Benchmark. Yeah, people can't help themselves. Yeah, a lot it. of people can help themselves. And so what like we kind of went through an experience where we came back and now are very, very clear on who we are and what we want to do, which is Series A, Series B investing. I mean, Series A really being what we focus on. And, and you know, SoftBank may come down to the Series A one day. If so, God bless them. I definitely don't think um, people should
2: rule it out. It, I mean, the idea you know, that they would do...
1: Well, if you're, if you are SoftBank, SoftBank wants to put a lot of money to work and it's very hard to do that, the Series A. So I think it's, it's unlikely that that will happen. Um, And so like for, for us, we're just focused on doing what we've been doing for 20 plus years now, which is being that, you know, the first call and really kind of trying to shepherd these companies to their, you know, their, their full potential. And we, we can't ignore what's happening with SoftBank. Like we, Obviously, we're beneficiaries of that with Uber and WeWork, Um, and then you've got, you know, Katrina Lake at Stitch Fix who raised forty-two million dollars and went public and has a multi-billion-dollar company. So which didn't take that? Which didn't didn't, like yeah, forty-two million dollars. Like that's just an unbelievable uh, story. And so. You know, we hope to find many more of those companies. But so. can they resist that money? Because you've got to, because one of the things is you,
0: you're, you're all investing in innovative and groundbreaking companies, yeah. but venture capital hasn't been that, you know, everybody comes out, I mean, Remember Mark and came in and we're going to change our capital. Really, not really. It's the same system, right. essentially. But what does disrupt venture capital?
1: I mean, a lot of capital does disrupt yeah. venture capital, right? Which right. is the problem we've had. You know, as an industry, you know, Bill obviously has been speaking about that for a while. Yeah, he's he's the
0: tisk tisker.
1: Yeah, he's uh, he does a good job there. And it's mm-hmm. you know, it's one of those things that you keep on expecting the problem to bounce, you know, in the other way, and instead it actually is just getting worse. Obviously, with you know, SoftBank is the most recent. Where does entrant. the money go? The money is getting jammed into a lot of companies, yeah. and it is, um, you know, I think about. You know, I think it remains to be seen what the impact will be on these companies, like. I think about um, when you're running a business, you have this decision which is that you can turn the wheel towards growth or you can turn the wheel towards profitability. And it's really freaking hard to turn the wheel towards profitability. It's like this act of will every day of, of knowing what to say no to, you know, which you have to say increasingly. But then when you have a soft bank or you have just like this you know amount of available capital, available in the private markets, which is so, like, the, the amount of diligence you have to do to raise money in the private markets versus the process of going public, it's night and day. I mean, it's just so mm-hmm. much easier. And so the companies can kick the can down the road by raising more money in the private markets. And then they don't, you know, they don't have the same pressure towards profitability right. that they would otherwise have if they were public. And then they're on the risk of SoftBank giving their money
0: to a competitor.
1: Well, and that's if they say no, that's yeah. you know that is the risk that they you know SoftBank I definitely. I think that was the movie The Godfather. <laughs> yeah,
2: Dara had a great quote yesterday at the Goldman conference where he says, "You know, I'd rather have the capital cannon, you know, behind me than in front of me." Right. And that's and right. that's, that's like the you know out. kudos to them. I mean, it's a strong negotiating tactic when they say, "You know, we're going to invest in Lyft if you know if this SoftBank tender with Uber doesn't go through."
1: Mm-hmm.
2: And then it works. I think it works.
1: I mean, Although money isn't always the factor. Of well, success. right. I mean it takes a tremendous amount of discipline if you're one of these founders and then you have this tremendous war chest to then stay disciplined with how you use that capital. I mean, it's it's just a it's a bigger version of what we've you know, what we face in the early stage markets where like you know, I'm starting to sound like an old person. But when I started my career, I remember we were working on a Series A investment, and it was like a five million dollar investment. We're at ten pre, and we're just like, "Oh my God, this is an expensive round. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and what's it going to do to the company to have five million dollars at this stage of the company? Right. And here we are, where the Series As are easily fifty, yeah, yeah easily fifteen million, but like can yeah. be can be far far bigger than yeah, that. Yeah, some of the numbers are crazy. it's, it's yeah. So you, you could also just put the money in the bank. Like some
0: I mean I mean speaking of Pinterest, right. they didn't spend a lot of their money, right? I mean he he
1: yeah, well Ben is thankfully super. he has the DNA of a very disciplined. Well, he's cheap is what I He's said. cheap. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Like he's yeah. he is cheap and and I think that's the right like it is so easy to um to just spend money when you have it. Right. And right. and it and it really does like I I am one of those people who believe that having a um scarcity mm-hmm. b- brings out the best in a company right. and really focuses you on what is core to the company and and then you execute better. And so I like that discipline and I think it's it'll be It'll. Be, it remains to be seen what's going to happen to these companies that get to raise a lot of capital. Yeah, they may never go public. They may never go public. Yeah, that's the fear, yeah. right? That's the. That's Wh- the. What's fire the next company with. to go public? What's the next one to go public?
0: Yeah. I couldn't say. Couldn't say. I no. say Airbnb probably. I don't think. I think there's going to be someone else before that. Really? Oh yeah. Oh, all right. Okay. Yeah. Good. A good one. Yes. Uber. No, she says nothing. All right, last question, and Teddy will have a last question. What do you, if you were to give a tip for someone who's become, and I don't want to say female venture, just any venture Mm. capitalist, what would it be, what is a mistake you made that you would say, oh, I should have done that differently? It can be something you did great too. There shouldn't be a mistake. Like one thing that was critical to you. For someone
1: young in their career? Yeah. I mean, for me, it was absolutely uh, the, you know, finding someone like a Jeremy Levine who takes you under their wing and teaches you how to do the job. Like this is, people have for a long time talked about venture capital as this apprenticeship business. And there's no question that that's what it is because it's one of those businesses where um, I I call it the learning cycle. Like the the feedback cycle is not fast. It takes years for you to know whether you're on the right track with a company. And so when you're a young person and you don't have that pattern recognition now yet, you have to bootstrap it from someone else's right. pattern recognition, and it's very, very hard to find uh, a partner who is willing to invest the time in a young person to show them the craft. I mean, like I, I, you know, fight for fifteen-minute slots in my schedule right now. Mm-hmm. Where you know, it's it's if I spend an hour with someone, it means I can't spend an hour with a founder, and so your time is very, very precious. And so, to find someone who will make that investment um, which is a very long-term investment uh, is was like critical for for me I was uh, unbelievably lucky to get to work with Jeremy because he's not only just a great investor, but he was a great mentor to me. And so I think, I always tell people that when you join a firm, you want to make sure you're going to be set up for success. And the biggest way is who's going to be that person who's and going to, to champion right you. Yeah, and you have to pick that right. Yeah, one. Walt Mossberg did that for yeah. me. Yeah,
2: so, so you're, that's your advice for, for venture capitalists. I yes. Mean, kind of the, the corresponding question is, um, you know, you've now been at three firms. You know, you were at, it sounds like when you are at Pinterest, you were dealing with firms. What's your advice for, for CEOs who are, potentially, you know, negotiating a deal mm. or you know, they have four term sheets, one you know, there's one of them is 15% higher. Um you you my my point my point is you you've seen a yeah, lot sure. of shops.
1: I I I always tell people two things, which is number one, you want to really make sure that that VC that you're going to bring onto your board is going to be as much on the same side of the table as you are in terms of understanding what the strengths and weaknesses are of your business what the vision is and where you want to go from there. Because the last thing you want is to have that first board meeting and you kind of say, here's the new initiative I want to do. And the VC's like, yeah. but I thought, you know, like you don't want right. that strategy mismatch. That's number one. And then number two, and this is um, probably just as important, is is references. Like, And the references, like what I always tell founders is, don't call, you know, it's if someone gives you a reference and it's, you know, hot company here, hot company there. It's so easy to be a fair weather VC, and oh, and it yes. and it feels good to like get to call you know Brian Chesky or whoever it is and get to like do a reference. But ultimately, the the best references, the most useful ones, will be the ones when it's a company that has been going sideways or didn't succeed or you know even the CEO was let like, go. Oh, like talk to those people, and you'll really figure out what that VC is made of and you want to know like you don't want a fair weather fan on your on your board you want someone who will do the work
0: and there are lots of those
1: there are a lot of those and there's yeah. a lot of those which are weaker people or yeah. people who not necessarily
0: malevolent but right
1: it's more just cheerleading yeah um, or and when things are good they're there and then they don't, they don't do the hard work.
0: Yeah, and also assholes. You shouldn't go with
1: assholes. Yeah, <laughs> and they I, no. I say no to assholes.
0: <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Anyway, Sarah, this was great talking to you. What an interesting discussion, and I have a feeling you're going to be running everything someday, in this <laughs> sense. Um and thank you for coming on the show. Yeah, thank you so much uh, for having need, me. And taking your 15-minute slots. I really appreciate it. Now I feel badly for being late. Um, and thanks to Teddy Schliefer from Recode for co-hosting with me today. If you enjoyed the interview as much as I did, be sure to subscribe to the show. Be the first to listen to future episodes or catch up on previous episodes. You can find nearly 200 past interviews in whatever app you use to listen to this or on our website, recode.net slash podcast. If you have a minute, please leave us a review on Apple Podcasts that helps other people find the show. For your information, for anyone who'll be at South by Southwest in March, we'll be doing some live podcasts there. Vox Media is taking over the Belmont, about a ten-minute walk from the Austin Convention Center, and I already have booked some really amazing guests to be there in a live, uh, in a live audience setting. Um, now that you're done with this, you should check out our other Recode Radio podcasts on Recode Media with Peter Kafka. You hear no-nonsense interviews with some of the smartest people in media and entertainment. I also was too embarrassed to ask, along with Lauren Good of The Verge, where I answer all of your questions about consumer tech. And on Recode Replay, you can find audio from all of Recode's live events, including the Code Conference and Code Media. We had some really spicy sections uh, just recently at Code Media where many people... Said a lot of things, including uh, fa- uh, YouTube Susan Wojcicki, who suggested that Facebook go back to just posting baby photos, which was fun. <laughs> Thank you for listening to this episode of Recode Decode, and thanks to our editor Joel Robbie and our producer Eric Johnson. I'll be back here on Wednesday. Tune in then.